VegCast. Hey, I'm Vance, and this is VegCast 38. VegCast. For January 31st, 2008. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, we are back with another full menu of vegetarian-oriented podcastery for your listening pleasure. And uh, once again, of course, VegCast is sponsored by Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream made on dedicated vegan equipment by dedicated vegans. And speaking of dedicated vegans, we have one on the show today named Nick Cooney uh, with the Philadelphia area vegetarian organization called Hugs for puppies, and uh, they have just put out a comprehensive site called vegpa.net where you can find vegetarian and vegan uh, things to eat, and uh, we kind of look into that and find out uh, that there are actually a lot more places out there than we might have imagined. We have, as always, some music, this time from Verdun that uh, you may recall from VegCast 5. Uh, but we didn't play a whole song there, and we will play that. And as always, of course, also a science fact. This one uh, dipping into the realm of animal sentience. Uh, in case we needed another confirmation of that, well, we're going to have that for you. So all that is coming up. So I would suggest you sit back, relax, and listen to this edition of Bench. All right, we're going to get right to that Nick Cooney interview. Just as a little uh, sidelight factoid, uh, we had tried to get this uh, together for the previous VegCast, but a uh, a separate media outlet that will remain unnamed uh, wanted to do the story first. So they had a story that came out this morning, and this podcast with much fuller information about Hugs for Puppies and about Nick Cooney uh, is coming out tonight so that we can be sure to get that in under the wire as is our want for uh, for the second podcast for January. So just a little uh, sidelight and now without further ado we're going to go over to the interview with Nick Cooney. Okay right now on VegCast we are talking with Nick Cooney of Hugs for Puppies. Uh, one of Philadelphia's uh, premier uh, animal-oriented organizations, if not the premier organization. Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on VegCast. And uh, let's just get to that uh, question of hugs for puppies. Uh, number one, would you consider it the premier animal organization? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're the largest animal rights organization in the Philadelphia area. Okay. And uh, certainly try to stay as busy as possible. Right. And let's get right to what you do. The uh, the reason that we're having on right now is uh, you folks have just put out a a website that is a kind of a comprehensive directory of places to get vegetarian food in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, especially for those of us around Philadelphia, uh, there's a lot of uh, different options, not all of them at specifically vegetarian establishments. And I made the crack when, when I got this that... Uh, you know, I, I had hardly expected to see something so utilitarian out of you guys because I associate you more with 
uh, you know, showing up at, at protests and doing things like that, but you, you really have a whole range of activities. So if, if other people out there might have uh, some of that prejudice that I had before this, uh, if you could help dispel that by explaining what the, uh, what the mission is and how you guys go about it. Sure, yeah. Well, one common expression is to blame the media, and I think that uh, phrase certainly applies in this case, just in the sense that, um, you know, we work on a lot of different campaigns, and we do do a lot of uh, utilitarian non-confrontational work in order to educate people about the benefits of vegetarian eating, about the problems of factory farming. But um, that's something that most people don't know about us, simply because uh, the perhaps flashier, perhaps more confrontational things, like protesting, are typically what generate media attention, whereas things like veg leafleting, doing humane education classes, veg advertising campaigns, things like that don't always um, get out into the, the public arena. So, yeah, in addition to our protest-based campaigns, we do a lot of, a lot of um, day-to-day work educating people about the benefits of a veg diet. Uh, we do tons of leafleting in Center City, Philadelphia, as well as on a lot of college campuses. We do human education programs in grade schools, high schools, and even some colleges throughout the Philadelphia area, and um, always, pretty much always focus on factory farming in those presentations. Uh, we've done some veg advertising campaigns over the years. We've done television advertisements. We've done um, septibus ads. Uh, we've had a poster ad campaign. Right now, uh, we're very big on Internet advertising, AdWords advertising, uh, to direct people to ChooseVeg.com website. And that's been going very successful, so we're going to be doing a lot more of that this year in 2008. As you mentioned, yeah, we just launched a VegPA.net which has over 300 restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, bars, and other places that uh, a vegan, a vegetarian, or even someone who isn't, but uh, wants to have a good vegetarian meal, can go to eat. And that was created in collaboration with our friends at Mercy for Animals out in Chicago. Okay. And is there any other affiliation, any other technical affiliation between the two organizations? Yeah, two two separate organizations, but um, Mercy for Animals is a fantastic organization. Uh, with what they do, and they've also been uh, really great to us in terms of of uh, helping us set up a number of things. This website is one of them. The Internet advertising is another, and, and there's other ways which they've been a great help to us over the years. Now, have they done one for, for is there a VegIllinois.net, or are you going to be helping out them with that, or how's that work? They have a couple. They have a VegOhio, and they have a VegIllinois. Um, VegOhio? Yes, they do. Now that's you know, I grew up in Ohio, and I find that hard to believe. What is there like seven locations in the whole? There's, there's I think, a hundred fifty <laughs> or something like that. Okay, actually, a lot. Yeah. Well, I haven't it's, been back for a while. <laughs> Mercy for Animals actually started in Ohio. That's where their founder Nathan Runkle is from. So they have a pretty big presence there, and I'm sure they know every place there is to know about when it comes to veg eating. Well, that's great. I mean, it does seem like I, you know, I was being a little ironic about it, but it. Certainly, I can't imagine that there were 150 places uh, in Ohio back at the time that I was growing up there and Uh and being led to believe that vegetables were uh, something that were only ever consumed in a a state of near liquidity. Uh, And and it was not until I got out to the East Coast that I actually found out that there there was all this food that I could actually like that I thought that I hated. So, but the point being, that was a little bit of a digression, the point being that it, it it there does seem to be a steady progression of uh, of places opening up uh vegetarian establishments and other establishments that aren't vegetarian uh offering uh you know menu options beyond 
a salad or a veggie burger. Is that is that your uh, sure, impression absolutely. as well? I mean, in Center City, Philadelphia, you see new vegetarian restaurants all the time. I mean, there's several all-vegetarian or nearly all-vegetarian restaurants that seem to open up every year. And even when you get to, uh, to uh, other places that you would never imagine would have vegetarian options, I mean, I grew up in northeast Philadelphia, and uh, a few months back I heard that this uh, steak place right down the street from where I grew up, and I didn't know anyone that was vegetarian in northeast Philadelphia, mm-hmm. at least not my neighborhood. So anyway, a few months back I heard that uh, the steak place up there down the street from my parents' house, uh, in addition to all their meat offerings, they now have the vegan chicken cheesesteak, um, veggie wraps, and some other things as well. So, yeah, from everything from new vegetarian and vegan restaurants opening to non-vegetarian restaurants having either good uh, vegan menu items or a whole separate vegan or vegetarian menu, definitely the amount of options for vegans, vegetarians, or anyone who just wants to eat that kind of food is definitely expanding a lot. Mm-hmm. Certainly in Philadelphia, and it would seem to be the case uh, throughout the country as well. Now, do you? I, I know you you can't speak for all of the proprietors of these places, but for places that aren't vegetarian establishments, but they have, uh, you know, like a big vegetarian menu or something. I'm. It's, sure. it's kind of it's hard for some of us that, I mean, we're used to the concept of vegetarian restaurant owners uh, who you know want to spread the the gospel by you know through people's stomachs and by getting them acquainted with how good the food is and so forth, but. It's harder to try to suss out what people are thinking when they're, you know, they're eating meat, they're selling meat, and so forth. But then they're also catering, either figuratively or literally, to vegetarians. Yeah, I mean, it 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 must be that it is good for business, that it's good for their business. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many restaurants adding vegetarian menus or items onto their menu and keeping them there. So it must be good from a business point of view, um, and I think that's certainly due to the fact that there's more and more vegetarians every day. Right. Well, so let, let me just uh, ask you, and I we have uh, talked about this a little before uh, we started recording, but uh, how exactly did you go about uh, getting all of these places? I mean, there are some other sites that either nationally or otherwise that try to list, uh, you know, vegetarian options by region or by city or whatever. But this uh, this seems to be kind of taking that to another level. Um, would, can you just fill us in briefly on what the process was? Sure. I mean, it was a, a little bit of an extensive process of combing the Internet. There's a couple of national sites, as you mentioned. Uh, vegguide.org is one, Happy Cow, uh, vegetarianeating.com. And all of those sites have a number of listings, which were very, very helpful and essential to us in getting this site established. Um, but none of them are, are complete. They all have overlapping material, but they all have unique material as well. And then there are, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of other places that aren't on, the, on those sites at all, either because the restaurants are new um, or for some other reason perhaps they were just overlooked. So, you know, we used all, all those sites. And for the Philadelphia metro area, we used a lot of word of mouth, um, some people's individuals, individual websites where they talk about the restaurants they like to go to, uh, you know, restaurants we've just seen in passing or seen the menu in the window. Uh, other restaurants that were recommended to us by people who viewed the website or viewed the uh, Philadelphia Area Veg Eating Guide, which we've been putting out for a couple of years. So it really came from a number of sources, and we just put all together, it all together because we wanted to make this, this site as extensive as possible simply because we want to uh, make veg eating as easy as possible for someone who's going vegetarian or going vegan. Right. Well, it is a great, uh, a great resource, and I imagine... 
it's one thing here in Philadelphia where, for me, it was being able to find uh, just places that I, I didn't really know existed uh, or places that I didn't realize, uh, such as Vesuvio, that uh, you kind of clued me into, uh, that I might think of, associate with, you know, a bacon cheesesteak sandwich, uh, but that actually also have uh, an extensive vegetarian menu. But especially, I would imagine, people out in you know, who aren't in the urban centers of Pennsylvania, just knowing if there is even a vegetarian <laughs> restaurant yeah. within 30 miles, they w- it would almost be impossible for them to, you know, just happen across it. But they can say, well, you know, maybe here's somewhere where we can go next weekend or something. So that seems like a great, uh, a great resource. Yeah, one of my biggest surprises in doing the research was finding these restaurants, a lot of times purely vegetarian, if not vegan, uh, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, in small little towns scattered throughout Pennsylvania, nowhere near any of the major cities. So, um, you know, hopefully a few more people throughout the state will find out about those places as well. Great. Well, so uh, before I let you go, uh, you've uh, you've been working on the foie gras campaign in, in Philadelphia. Uh, you've done this, uh, the vegpa.net. What is there... Uh, another thing on the horizon for Hugs for Puppies, or are you just going to continue basically with uh, all your various uh, different outreach efforts and activities? Sure, i got a couple, a couple of big things on the horizon that we hope to get the bill to ban the Salaswag Ground Pass in Philadelphia. Um, it's scheduled to be voted on in city council soon. Hopefully that will get passed. We'll certainly be making every effort to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it fails, we'll probably uh, work to pull it on the ballot by voter initiative. So that's one big thing. We're going to continue to do a lot of vegan, uh, a lot of vegan outreach, and expand the vegan outreach programs we have. And then coming up a little later down the line, perhaps uh, in the middle of this year, we uh, hope to kick off a cage-free egg campaign, trying to get some institutions, uh, some colleges, and other institutions in the city to go cage-free. So yeah, a lot of big things going on. Okay, great. Well, before uh, uh, just one last question, I got to ask: Hugs for Puppies. It sure. it. Uh, it's almost comical in uh, in the way that you know you have organizations like Mobilization for Animals, and Compassion Over Killing, and things that uh, you know really try to uh, get to the crux of uh, the ethical issue that that they're covering. Um, and when when one hears this at first, it either sounds like oh, this is just a bunch of you know animal lo- quote animal lovers, people who want to give dogs and cats better treatment or something and you're really a very serious animal rights organization so was it <laughs> is it tongue in cheek or is it is it a, a a calculated media strategy or is it uh, is it like a trojan horse what what exactly <laughs> is the idea there i think the answer would be d all of the above okay. um it, I can't take credit for the name. It precedes my involvement with the organization. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I think the name was chosen be, because to, um, to counteract the idea that animal rights people are these mean, scary thugs that are trying to bully society into doing what they want. Um, and I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It, there's some positives, there's some negatives. But I think the positives outweigh the negatives. Um, for every uh, animal-friendly person who might underestimate who we are, the scope of our work, you know, there's probably 10 people who hear, hear our name and think, oh, that's cute, and it, it perks their ears, it gets them to pay attention, and it gets the cat and dog crowd who may never have thought about the factory farming issues or animal testing issues 
to pay attention and, and um, perhaps identify with it. If right. anything, simply catching people's attention is a great and almost invaluable um, tool and event. So simply the fact that the name Hugs for Puppies is so saccharine sweet, almost comically sweet, right. catches people's attention. Um, I think that's good, and hopefully it makes people uh, who've never thought about factory farming, animal testing, for other issues, make the connection between their dog or cat that they care about very much and animals on farms or in labs. Well, we can hope, and if nothing else, uh, you even if uh, they're not making the connection yet, you're giving them the opportunity to encounter uh, vegetarian food, and uh, that's vegpa.net. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, and, of course, that site also does link off uh, to choose veg and other uh, sites where people uh, can go to find ve- various organizations and so forth. So I think it's a great resource, and uh, I want to thank you for talking with us here on VegCast. Thanks so much, Vince. Verdun with their song To a Sparrow. And if you're not familiar with this 
band Verdun. I assure you that at least one of their members is vegetarian. I'll put a link in the show notes to VegCast5 so you can uh, find out more about uh, who that person, the leader of the band, is. I don't want to spoil that for you. Instead, we will turn right now to the science. Our science fact for this VegCast has to do with animal consciousness. The headline on this story, What, Where, When, Some Animals May Know. I'll read that lead for you. A long string of experiments over decades have repeatedly found that animals aren't as dumb as humans traditionally thought they were, and far from it. But are they actually conscious? Studies have given only vague glimpses of an answer, but some scientists have said that an organ must be conscious if it has episodic memory. This is basically the memory of the what, where, and when of events in life. New research has found that some animals may have just this sort of memory. So uh, just following the logic there, again, uh, if A implies B uh, and you find A, then B. And so we now have at least one experiment that at least indicates that one animal is actually conscious. And it would be odd if just one animal other than humans uh, was conscious, especially if that animal was a meadow vole. Uh, continuing to read, rodents known as meadow voles can, quote, recall the what, where, and when of a past event, researchers wrote in the title of a new study published in the research journal Animal Cognition. Now, this was... Uh, a study that did not involve training the animals to do anything, so there is no effect on their cognition from that. It exploited the fact that female voles, along with some other animals, enter a period of peak sexual receptivity just after giving birth uh, because they have such a short lifespan. They got to get with the program pretty quickly. Uh, so the researchers put male voles in a cage that contained two chambers. One chamber contained a female that was a day away from giving birth. The other contained a female that was sexually mature but not due to be in a state of heightened receptivity anytime soon. So please note that the female in that first cage had not just given birth, was not actually sexually uh, receptive yet, but was a day away. Uh, so a day later, the males were placed in the same apparatus, which was now empty and clean. The males initially quote, chose and spent significantly more time investigating the chamber that originally housed the pregnant female who would by now have entered peak receptivity, the researchers wrote. So it indicates, it looks like the males, the male voles there uh, were not just remembering that they had, uh, there had been a female there, but actually were um, extrapolating from that, that it was a day later, so now would be the time for her. Uh, and there are some quibbles with the study, I have to say. Some people have said m maybe they uh, they have some other instinctual cues that uh, they're not actually logically extrapolating. I say that's fair enough. But the thing that jumped out to me, you know, when they say the, the cage was now empty and clean, uh, that's talked about uh, further down in the article by University of Toronto memory researcher Endel Tolving, uh, who mentioned that uh, voles have a very keen sense of smell, and perhaps unbeknownst to the humans, even in cleaned, disinfected cages, the rodents could sniff something that cues their actions. But overall, the findings add uh, to a body of work suggesting animals have a capacity for mental time travel. And here's where they go 
on to mention that this groundbreaking study is not actually as groundbreaking as it seemed back in the lead. Past work suggested some apes can anticipate a future need for tools and scrub jays remember what kind of food they stored, where, and when. So once again, we have that phenomenon that uh, every new study that comes out uh, confirming animal consciousness, animal sentience, and so forth has to uh, kind of present itself like, oh my gosh, this really breaks some new ground. But in fact, uh, when you look at the other data, you find that there is already ample data, many different experiments showing animals having a capacity, uh, mental capacity, that was not even dreamt of 100 years ago, uh, basically even 50 years ago. And back then, we were using that as a rationale for abusing animals and doing whatever we wanted with them, that animals are dumb, that they are just machines, blah, blah, blah. And now we pretty much have definitively proven that concept of animal existence to be wrong, and yet we haven't changed the behavior that was based on that previous assumption. So... That's just another little bit of a logical extrapolation that seems to come up when we read the science fact. All right, that's going to just about wrap it up for VegCast 38. But before we're out of here, while uh, we're wrapping this up, a news story that's just breaking. Humane Society has released a video uh, showing obvious downer cattle being tortured in various ways to get them to stand up and walk into the slaughterhouse uh, so that the uh, meatpacking plant can obey the letter of the law uh, while clearly using cattle that uh, are illegal. And uh, the Humane Society has done a great job with this. First, uh, in whoever it was that actually went in and uh, infiltrated this place so that they could get the video. Uh, That's certainly not uh, an easy or particularly safe thing to be doing, so I applaud that. And also the whole way that the Humane Society has spun this in uh, making it clear that this beef is going to uh, the school lunch program. So uh, it generated headlines about sick, abused cattle being fed to school children. Uh, which is getting some people to set up and take notice. Uh, There are calls for investigation. We don't know how wide-ranging that will be or whether it's just people huffing and puffing while the uh, media spotlight is on. I'm sure we'll have more on that during the next uh, VegCast, but uh, wanted to just point everybody to that if they hadn't seen it or heard of it yet. I doubt that a lot of VegCast listeners really need to see the video, but uh, other people obviously do need to see it and are reacting to it, and uh, you can read about that. I'll have uh, a link to that in the show notes. So now that we've uh, gotten through that, we're just about out of here. Okay, I want to thank Nick Cooney of Hugs for Puppies uh, for the interview, and uh, be sure to check out VegPA.net. And uh, I also want to thank Verdun, and you can again find more about them in VegCast 5. That'll be in the show notes. And, of course, I also want to thank Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream made on dedicated vegan equipment by dedicated vegans. For sponsoring this VegCast, we'll be right back with you in a couple of weeks with a pretty well-known author. And until that point, I ask only that you get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.